Ditch Cozy Zone friends, Ben Weber here. Thank you so much for your patience. As uh, you know, I've taken a, a few weeks off from posting uh, a Cozy Zone. Uh, for those of you who are wondering, I'm okay. You know, there's just a lot going on. There's a lot of a lot of work, a lot of moving into my new place. A lot of reckoning with my artist self, reckoning with myself in general. Um, yeah, but I, I'm I'm really excited. I, I've recorded a whole bunch of new ones, and I am really grateful to share them soon. I've been basking in Emmett's zone. Uh, it felt like a huge accomplishment. I've gotten a lot of great feedback, and I appreciate that. Yeah, and I, I hope to do more like that, where... I, you know, I sit with someone who I want to get to know more, whose very being is very important to my life, uh, who is very close to, I don't know, my happiness. Uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm in, I'm in Newark, uh, Liberty Airport right now. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty cozy. I've, I've stationed myself in front of, uh, a Make-A-Wish ad, uh, my buddy here has been uh, pacing back and forth uh, from my exact spot uh, for the past uh, 20 minutes. Uh, he's, he's rocking out. He's uh, digging for gold in his nose. Um, yeah, listening to tunes. It's great. Um, this Make-A-Wish ad depicts a, a young uh, black child holding hands with an astronaut. Uh, they're both holding rolly suitcases. Uh, they're in an airport. Oh, and behind them, out of focus, is a, is a princess, a soccer player, a surfer dude, uh, a fighter jet, and I think a juggler. Very, it's very hard to tell, but a man in a red top hat with three that look like juggling balls that are in the air. Uh, that's going on. So that's where I am. And I'm, I'm looking out into the, the open terminal here. And this is actually very germane uh, to this episode. Episode 33, Eric Navala Lee and his Harlem Rooftop Garden. Uh, because uh, the art project we talk about together uh, that we ended up calling Terminal Blank um, takes place in an airport. It is, it is offering uh, people who are passing through an airport the opportunity to imagine what uh, their city could be and they could actually physically build uh, the city that they want to see, a fantasy city, a dream city a city that they think would work the best um, you know, they get a chance to do it when they're, they're at the airport uh, I'm going home to visit my parents uh, in Milwaukee, my father uh, is about to conclude uh, I believe maybe six to eight week cooking course he's spent his entire life wanting to be a chef. Uh, he's been a business lawyer in Milwaukee for most of his adult life, and he finally mustered up the courage to take a cooking class to learn about knife technique and learn about how to make all sorts of stuff. So I'm going home to experience the culminating dinner that he is making. Um, 
and that should be good. You know, listen, going home is filled with angst, uh, you know, all sorts of old old feelings are, are rustled up, uh, especially now that I have been in therapy for uh, nearly a year, working on all those old feelings, facing my fears, giving names to my fears, giving names to my feelings. But, I, you know, I'm feeling... Uh, frankly, I'm feeling a little a little numb. I'm like in battle mode. I, you know, I don't know what's going to happen when I see my, my folks. Am I going to get angry? Am I going to get sad? Am I going to get disappointed? Maybe all these things. But I'm trying to go with the, the understanding that ultimately I, I am responsible for myself. Uh, I have the power to take care of myself. Uh, I'm not a bad person. Um, any, no one's behavior... Uh, around me is because I'm a bad person, and so you know that's that's really nice. Uh, can I tell you a little bit about uh, Eric? Uh, Eric and I met in an improv group uh, my freshman year, short form improv group called Camp Onawana Swim Team. And he's he's a sweet, silly, goofy man who loves life and loves loves art, and I don't know, just just is is a very good guy. And I I've watched him. Uh, grow up. I've grown up alongside him. Um, you know, we, we float in and out of each other's lives. And it is always so easeful sharing space with him. Um, it is always cozy when we spend time together. We go to dinner periodically. We go to functions with each other. And he always has an enormous smile on his face. And for the last several years, uh, an enormously long Fu Manchu mustache that he rocks with abandon. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's fucking awesome. That is fucking great. Get those long, coarse face hairs out there. You know, don't shave them off. Get, get, give them. Give them here and let us take a look at it so we know what it is to be a man, to be confident, to know that our beauty is inevitable. Uh, and we've, we're already the most beautiful creature anyone has ever seen. So, Eric, thank you for teaching me that. Thank you for inviting me to your beautiful Harlem rooftop apartment. Very different from my environment now uh, in this airport. Uh, Auntie Annie's, the stench of Auntie Annie's is filling the air. I was walking around looking for a cozy spot, and this is like a panopticon in here. You know, there it is a circle. There's like a cross-through with these like sad restaurants. There's an Earl of Sandwich uh, with like four tables. I guess there's like table service for Earl of Sandwich, for those of you who are not familiar. It's like a Quiznos, but like with, you know, very... A very like busy marketing and branding department who's like all right all right so let's take Quiznos the shitty toasted subs of Quiznos and have a lot of puns and a lot of like historical references and maybe put some banana peppers on some sandwiches and and here we go and we'll put it in Newark Liberty Airport and we'll set a trap for those who are who are here now um I, all I want, I think, is like a little hot dog wrapped in, in sweet dough from Auntie Annie's. That's or and like a beer. There's a picture of a beer, but I haven't seen any real beers. There's some like nice soda. I imagine it's like seven dollars. I'm holding out. My dad promised that we were going to go to like this late night ramen place in Milwaukee, so we'll see about that. Uh, I hope to do a cozy zone with my mom. 
when I'm home. We'll see if that happens. Uh, that would be a, a big win uh, in, like, all of the ways. All of the ways. Uh, uh, my, my buddy Tim was joking that it would be my equivalent to Mark Maron's Lorne Michaels uh, episode. I haven't listened to that yet. I will. I'm slowly making my way through all the Marons because... You know, listen. He's the he's the ur text of podcasts, and you gotta you gotta pay him respects. Guys, thanks for listening to Cozy Zone. We are always brought to you by the Cozy Zone Foundation. You can like us on Facebook, Facebook.com/slash Cozy Zone Foundation. I don't even know if that's the right one, but just look for us on Facebook and like us. Um, you have 55 likes. That's like it's almost. It's almost 56, and and 56 is the golden number. So let's let's get there, huh? If you haven't liked us already, do it. Uh, follow me on Instagram at Ben Weber Projects. Follow me on Twitter at Cozy Zones. Um, I don't know. Help me. Help you indulge in all this coziness. Talk to me. Hold me accountable to myself. Um, I wanna, I wanna see you. Uh, I wanna, I wanna do stand up for you. I'm, I'm thinking about that. I had a great talk with Anna Dresden. That'll be coming out soon. I'm really, I'm really close, guys. I'm really close to like taking the plunge into becoming the man I wanna be. Um, there's a lot of fear, but I recently learned that you know, fear only is from the past. Um, so, so yeah, so no fear, as as the old. 90s adage went with the terrifying uh, tear script. No fear, uh, because you've already survived and you're doing fine. I'm doing fine. This is advice I'm getting myself. Uh, a child's wish is waiting. Help it take flight. Every 40 minutes, the Make-A-Wish Foundation grants the wish of a child with a life-threatening medical condition. Last year, nearly 65% of all wishes granted involved travel to visit family, to go on an exotic destination or to meet a hero. Give their wishes flight by donating your frequent flyer miles and hotel reward points. Can you imagine if you were waiting for your terminally ill child to like come to your door, and at that very moment, uh, some neighborhood rascals decided to ding-dong ditch you? You know, they ring your doorbell, you open the door, you're expecting to see, you know little little John who's struggling with stage 5 lymphoma and no one's there and I know I would think well did did he die in the force of him you know uh, ring my doorbell like that I don't know I'm just thinking how horrible and I don't know boundary breaking and like what a what a disgusting cruel thing ding dong ditches there was like a creak at my door recently and I like went to the door I thought it like the little doorbell rang I thought I heard the doorbell ring I looked out no one was there and it's just like that that some like unearthly force dares to cross my threshold I just uh, I don't know there's just something completely unsettling about it so friends if you are thinking of pranking your neighbor by ringing their bell and not being there, think again. Uh, take care of your neighbors. Take care of your fellow man. It's a cruel prank. Don't do it. Donate to Make-A-Wish. Thank you so much for listening. 
without further ado, I bring you episode 33, like the miners in that movie with Antonio Banderas, episode 33, Eric Navala Lee in his Harlem rooftop garden. Enjoy. Eric Navala Lee. Yes, Ben Weber. Hello. Hello. Welcome to your cozy zone. Well, welcome to you to my cozy zone. Yes, I feel welcomed. <laughs> it it has been an unbelievable Saturday so far in your in your care. Um, well, you come up so infrequently, so I'm glad that you're able to share a little bit uh, in our home. Yeah, man. I mean, from the moment I I walked in, you know, I was greeted with your your swolled hand, uh, which is holding holding the red guest mic right now. Right as we speak, very gingerly holding the red guest mic. Yeah, and you know, uh, we sat and chatted. I watched you care for yourself with your swolled hand. <laughs> And uh, we had we had a delicious lunch, yes, made well, by Minerva, my lovely wife. Yes, uh, grilled cheese with a Parmesan crust, and a delicious salad. Um, and we we went to Double Dutch Espresso. Mm-hmm. Coffee and more. Coffee and more. Um, where where the heck are we right now, Eric? Uh, so we are currently on the roof of the brownstone that I have an apartment in, in Harlem, on 120th Street. Uh, We are sitting next to a lovely school where lacrosse practice is going on right now. Yeah, I hear that. Which is one of the numerous activities that go on on a consistent basis. Uh Um, And what's interesting about the roof is this is where I have my roof garden, uh, which is a collection of sort of derelict and uh, tossed-off buckets that have been repurposed to varying success into planters. Um, the garden is something I've had for going on six years, I believe, in wow. various forms. And each year ends up being a little bit different and sort of succeeds and fails in different ways. Um, so this is the current iteration. It seems like there's a there's a, a, a delicate dance going on up here between life and death. Um, there's a lot of green and a lot of... I see some, some maybe tomatoes and some kale and some herbs, but a lot of dried stalks. So, yeah, so the garden's currently sort of divided into the real garden and sort of the leftover garden. Um, Probably in year two was when I was the most ambitious and successful, and at that point, I think there were something like 40 different plants up here that were doing pretty well in producing. The issue is I was using old uh, five-gallon food containers, And they were great, they worked really well, but they weren't built for outdoor use. So the sun has degraded the plastic. I see. So if you look at any one of them, you can see major cracks up the side, pieces missing from the top. So these are are all the buckets that sort of aren't actually usable, um, but haven't been removed or dealt with, Mm -hmm. where we have the bed and sort of the the remaining working uh, containers on the real side of the garden. Um, So you're seeing... What is sort of dried out is what nature put there and what I (laughs) neglected um, and what happens when you try and put plants on a hot roof and don't water them. (laughs) Well, it's still very beautiful and picturesque. I mean, we're we're looking at the the surrounding skyline of of Harlem. Um, You see a lot of buildings. Like, it feels very... You know, I feel like we're in a little valley almost. Where nothing's towering above us, but but we're we're definitely nestled in. You can't see too far ahead of you. We're not too far off the ground. 
No, we're only, it's a brownstone. So there's yeah. only three floors, right? Yeah. Three and a half plus the garden floor. Um, and that's one of the joys of most of Harlem is that it's all low density housing, mm-hmm. wide sidewalks. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing gets too much more than eight stories. I mean, some of that's changing now, obviously. Yeah. There's more and more developments going on everywhere. Yeah. Um, but yeah, from where we are, there's a lot of open space. Um, and when you're on the roof, you know, you have the parapet. So when we're sitting like we are now, you have a very sort of lowered view yeah. of everything. But you stand up and you go to an edge and you get a different perspective, right? Yeah. You can then go back and you can see Columbia and you can see oh, the yeah. cathedral. Oh, yeah. I see the cathedral there. And I um, see some classic water towers, some new construction. Uh, so, yeah, it's a nice it's a nice different perspective, I think. Um that's you know in my home and above my home yeah um what is the crown jewel would you say of of what what's of what's growing, growing yeah um in terms of what's doing the best yeah uh probably the kale right now i mean mm-hmm. a lot of it is we're at the end of the year right um so a lot of the things that normally grow are sort of finished yeah um probably the real winner this year was we did watermelon um probably the size of a double size softball maybe you know not big not like you know the watermelons you buy in the store but little double size softball like take a softball and think about it as times like two. A, as a times two got maybe. it so <laughs> not like too big to really like grip in your hand uh-huh. um but not you know the the real deal um and those are probably those are probably the most fun and the thing that we put real energy into and yeah. we got seven watermelons wow. i think this year nice um I mean the 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 benefit of the garden generally is not actually the bounty or the output. Um, you know, you get twenty tomatoes, you get a couple cucumbers. It's not what you're using to really like feed yourself or, right. or even to share with others. Um, but it's just enough that like you know it's happening. Um, what what we, is what is the the like the true bounty of the garden? Well, it's a nice way to to disconnect a little bit and focus it on something that ideally is simpler. Um, you plant the plant, you tend the plant, something hopefully wonderful comes out of it. Um, and at least for me, as much of it as it's a sign of like me as a gardener and what I can do, it's nice to have something like this up here that in some respects operates on its own as well. Mm. So I can tend it. Or I cannot tend it, and maybe a plant dies, maybe a plant lives, um, but it's operating a little bit on its own systems. To me, I mean, it almost sounds like a metaphor for parenting in a way. You know, <laughs> like you know, it's cer- a, certainly a bit more cold and removed than you you know would worry about a, a your own flesh and blood. But you know, the the ideal is you know you you tend something, it, it, you hope that it'll be a reflection of your own acumen and goodness. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, and then normally, you let it go. right. I mean, normally this is the first time I've been up on the roof in a month, maybe. So mm-hmm. ideally you take care of your child, uh, more often than that. Yeah. Um, but no, I mean, it's like anything else you want to see outcome from the work that you put in. Right. Right. And generally so much that you do in a day just sort of like disappears into the world of actions. Yeah. Oh God. Um, yeah. So even if it's one like pepper, you can like see it from little plant. You can see the bud. You can see the flower, the bloom, and then all of a sudden there's a pepper, and it's like amazing. So it's this tangible manifestation of your efforts and your your hopes and dreams and your gardening skills. Yeah, you finally you know you get 
you get a beginning and end and they're i mean you know, they talk about the cycle of nature and all these things and i think that there's truth to it right you get to see a full um procession and like progress of growth and death and whatever happened you're making some circular motions with your swolled hand, uh, sort of as Just you trying to keep the blood flow. Yeah, absolutely. As you as you sort of, you know, are are illustrating this cycle of of life and death. What happened to your hand, Eric? Um, so the hand, the swollen hand, is an outcome <laughs> of another um, hobby that I partake in, which is beekeeping. Uh huh. Um, so the bees aren't actually on the roof; they're sort of out the back of the building, okay. but they're still here on site. Um, and yesterday I went in in an effort to... This happened yesterday? Yes. Oh yesterday. my God. I thought it had just happened. No, no. This is oh, this still, is This, this is, is like 24 hours later. Oh my God. It's vicious. Oh my God. Um, so I went in to try and close up and sort of prepare the hive for the winter. Um, and when you open a hive, you're opening a hive of bees. And right. you're sticking your hand in it and you're moving things around and whatever else. It's traumatic for the for bee the colony, bees. presumably. I mean, the only other time this happens is when, like, the bear comes right. and, like, rips up the tree. <laughs> um, yeah. There's not a lot of context that they have for when somebody tears apart their home. Right. Um, <laughs> so, understandably, the bees aren't always happy. I mean, bees are, right, not to say that bees are mean. Honeybees, the kind of bees that people keep, are docile. They're bred to be docile. Um, and, like, don't just attack people. You know, it involves them protecting themselves, basically, from me, the intruder. Um, so I was going in, working on the bees, and, the you know, your hands are in the hive, and the bees are going to protect themselves, so they sting you. And I don't know to the degree that I'm allergic to bees. I mean, obviously, there's some allergy reactions happening. Cause your, my hand, your hand is like a double softball, right? My now. hand's like a double softball. Uh-huh. I mean, it's like when you went to the doctor's office as a kid and you would take the, the surgical glove and put it in your mouth and blow up the balloon <laughs> with it, basically. Um, so the fingers are still, like, there, but they've been subsumed by the balloon that is my hand. Um, That's perfect. So... <laughs> But, you know, what It's I. What can you do? The bees are going to sting you, and I'll be swollen for a couple of days, and then it'll go away, and I'll be back, hopefully. Well, you're a trooper, Eric. It's a small, I, it's a small sacrifice to make to have bees, I think. I guess so, yeah. And the, I guess so, two, two of their soldiers gave their lives to the drones. Not drones. Uh, yeah, so the drones are the male bees. Right, right, the female uh, um, worker bees. Right. Uh, what are they called? I think just worker bees. Worker bees. Um, yes, they, yeah. So really, if anybody really suffered, it was the two bees that had to sacrifice themselves. That's true. That's true. Um, I'll be okay. Yeah. Well, it, you know, it, it seems to me it's getting better all the time, um, but who knows? Who yeah, knows? There's, there, we're only in the beginning of this process. Yeah. Oh, God. And how long does it last, usually? A couple of days. Okay. Um a lot of it, when you get stung on the hand, I think you have a lot of blood vessels and yeah. sort of fine uh, veins and things happening yeah. in there. So the swelling, you know, I've been stung on the head and the chest and shoulder and things like that. And you don't, it doesn't, your shoulder doesn't swell up. Right. Just the hands. Oh, God. Well, uh, here's to a quick recovery. Um, bees, too, are another example of, um, I don't know, things that you can have tangible tangible outcomes for your your work but it's really mainly their work like what yeah what is like a human what is human intervention like is there necessary human intervention to keep the bees sure absolutely um 
much of it is within the context of what you as the beekeeper want out of it. So bees live in the wild. They make their own hives, They, you know, in the hollows of trees or in urban settings, right? Yeah. They'll find um, attics or, you know, under places that are protected. Um, bee, like a bee queen will live anywhere from like two to four years. Um, and when the queen dies, the bees will make new queen and they'll sort of continue on. But hives die and, you know, that happens. Um, so a beekeeper's job is to try and sort of stretch out the life of the bees and to put ideal, put them in an ideal situation so that they're healthy and happy. Um, so a lot of it's sort of caretaker. I'm not going in there on a regular basis to sort of micromanage what they're doing. They know what they're doing. Right. My job is to make sure that um, they're healthy, right? There are certain diseases, there are mites, mm. there are some other things that can mm-hmm. negatively impact not only your bee colony, but then can impact other bees. Yeah. Um, and then you want to make sure that uh, sort of the hive itself is clean, you know, it's not damp, those sort of environmental factors. And then after that, they sort of do their own thing um, and manage themselves. Probably the the last thing that a beekeeper will do, and this, again, is sort of dependent on how much honey they want or sort of like what their outcomes are looking for, is you can then uh, artificially feed the bees, right? So bees go find flowers, they get nectar, they make honey. Depending on where you are, depending on the, the year, the season, the weather... Bees will get more honey or less honey from the natural environment. And if you're looking at it at the end of the year and they don't seem like they have a whole lot of honey to survive the winter, you then basically provide them with your own sugar water that they can turn into honey without having to go forage for it. That's, uh, have you, do you feed the bees yourself? I have. This is year five, I believe, that I've had bees. And two of the years I have tried to feed them um, with varying success. Okay. Oh, the bees, and I mean I don't know the bees. The bees feel like this metaphor for our our existence on Earth too. Like you know, you hear a lot. I hear a lot. Or I pay attention to a lot of like you know colony collapse disorder and sort of all of the the things that are befalling the bees. Um, and I imagine as keeping bees, you are attuned to the fragility of their life and also perhaps their resilience. Like, do you, do you keep your, your finger on the pulse of, like, bee politics and, and the sort of world state of bees? I mean, like anything else that you're interested in, you know, your, your eye catches those articles or you sort of overhear. Um, some of these things become how you... Be- you are identified, so I know other beekeepers right. because they're beekeepers, uh-huh. not because of other means or reasons. Yeah. Um, so that community, excuse me, does begin and builds um, and sort of draws you in to a degree. What, um, what are like beekeeper gatherings like? What is that? How do you meet other beekeepers? So how I learned beekeeping was through a meetup group in New York City. Okay. Um, so beekeeping only became legal maybe six years ago. Wow. Uh, so, it was, and it was sort of like a don't ask, don't tell. Like people were keeping bees in the city, and as long as they weren't swarming and nobody was complaining, like yeah. nobody was really looking for them. Right. Um, then they legalized it, and some more groups sort of popped up that were run by old school beekeepers and wanted to basically share the knowledge. So I spent a winter going every week to like a slide lecture class with me and forty <laughs> other people. Who, where where was it held? It was at the um, Central Park. Um, Parks Department building is the Armory, oh, like on 63rd and uh, 5th Avenue. Oh, cool. Yeah, because it was like sanctioned finally, right? Yeah. So the parks got involved and now 
the parks department has beehives places most community gardens have beehives um there's definitely an expansion that's happening in the city nice um so I learned from other beekeepers, and they want to share their knowledge, right? They want more, and everybody sort of wants more bees, right? Talking about the um, sort of the connective nature of the bee and the importance that it has to our ecosystem yeah. and life in general. Um, you know, they have the, um, yeah, the the image of, like, what the grocery store is without bees. Oh, nice. And basically all that's left are, like, bananas, like everything else. Like, it doesn't <laughs> oh, exist. God. Um, oh, God. And in China, like everything else in China, they've replaced bee labor with people labor. I saw that in a documentary, this terrifying gray landscape of, like, people, yeah, painting the... the with little the brushes and Q-tips and... Stamen or whatever with... Yeah, with and, pollen. And, and fertilizing, yeah, oh, plant crazy. one by one by one. Yeah. Um, and, right, because they don't have the bees. <coughs> yeah. And it just doesn't exist, and that's the only way they can manage their agriculture. Ugh. I mean, American agriculture is, th- I mean, beekeeping, there's like hobbyists like myself, right. but there's industrial beekeeping. Yeah, yeah. Industrial beekeepers. The frozen trucks or the refrigerated trucks where they... Right, they, the flatbeds with 10,000 beehives on yeah, them yeah. and drive around from monoculture to monoculture. Yeah, the, the almond uh, orchards primarily, it seems like. I mean, they do almonds, they do apples, alfalfa. Right. Right. I mean, basically they circumvent the country and the season yeah. and whatever every month is something else that is in bloom, and that's where they are. And yeah. they bring the bees directly to the um, to the plants. You have worms, too. Yeah, that was the beginning. Um so, I mean, generally, I'm environmentally conscious and have thought about these issues of waste and food and nature and all of this. Um, so everything began with me vermicomposting in an effort to cut down on food waste. Yeah. So that was my sort of first foray into this kind of stuff and went well and seemed to be, you know, was easy and successful. But then when you compost, you get compost. Right. And the question is like, well, what do you do with it? So yeah. I started a garden. Nice. And so I began the garden. And then, you know, three years after I started the garden, I decided that bees connect into this they do. Uh, system that I was trying to put together and shepherding. Um, yeah. So I really have tried to sort of close a little loop here yeah, within you, a single building. You are you are your own biome here. You, you're manufacturing this, this environment for yourself. Right, me and Polly Shore. We're just... <laughs> <laughs> we'll survive after the rest of the world ends. Yeah, yeah up, up here in, in central Harlem. It's nippy today and overcast. Yeah, unfortunately. We're yeah. getting the, the joys of fall and the sorrows of fall. Yeah, yeah. Things are dying. The weather is chilling um eric the the thing you said about like ephemera or like you know most of the work that you do is just just evaporates into sure i I, I don't know that's sticking with me and it feels like a sort of a central central metaphor for how we know each other like so we met at nyu uh in at the camp on swim team right maybe 14 years ago? Uh, 13 yeah, years ago? Yeah, 2003. So 12, no. What 2003. Yeah, 12, 13 years ago yeah, yeah, at thir- this point? Yeah, about 13 years ago. 
I think. Well, no, 12 years ago. It doesn't matter. 2003 is the date I know. Okay. And but yes, we, right. Maybe I began, you, you're a year younger. So yeah. I think you came second year. Yeah. Of yeah. What that improv group was. Yeah. Yes. 2003. So we've known each other a long time. Uh, absolutely. And in very uh, direct and intimate ways. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as, as being on an improv team. You have to put it all out there. You yeah. You can't not open yourself up to the people around you when you're performing. And then like anything else, you're spending so much time outside of performing as well yeah. that the relationships grow and you yeah. know everything about each other. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's true. And it's interesting, like our relationship, uh, you know, we talk a lot about, I don't know, sort of the, the New York City rhythms that happen. You know, we don't see each other very often. This is like the third time I've, I've been to your house in my life. And yet, every time we do see each other, I'm, I am always... I'm surprised and impressed of how quickly sort of we fall into a very easeful, intimate, deep, conversational place. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, I think one is there's people you're comfortable with generally yeah. and sort of elicit that and bring that out. And obviously you're one of those people. Um, oh, thank you. Whether it's from this cozy zone or the previous 30 that you found <laughs> to right, elicit these wonderful conversations yeah. with other people. Yeah. Um, you know, some I think both you and I, when you go through your formative years, which what, you know, college is for people oh and God, moving yeah. out of the suburbs that we grew up in and coming yeah. to a city by yourself, like, right, these these are, New York is how I identify myself and you and the other people we did improv with are a big part of how that identification happened and came yeah. about. Um, but yeah, but then the the interesting thing about relationships in New York, and I think, you know, both for benefit and detriment maybe, is that you have to put more conscious thought into it yeah there's enough other activities people things going on that you can keep yourself busy right? yeah there's enough to sort of distract you and at the end of the week look back and say oh i accomplished a lot of things or yeah. i was involved with a lot of things um and not a lot of reasons to like run into each other right so if you want to see each other you got to go out there and make an effort to see each other yeah um yeah and, you know, for most people, what that means is that you don't see each other once every couple of months because right. by the time you get your schedules to align, you know, by the time you even think about, oh, I haven't seen this person in a long time, um, it's been too long, I need to see what's going on and reach out, and the time goes by. Um, but that's some of the joy of, of friendships, I think, is that they can come and go a little bit, and if you're really comfortable with somebody and care about them, Obviously, you want these people in your life, and you want to be able to share your experiences with them. But even if you don't, um, that doesn't necessarily change the nature of your interactions, right? Like, what I've done for the last year doesn't impact how I think or feel about you and, like, the relationship that we have. Um, whereas people that I've met in the last year, that's very key to everything of how we know each other, right? I spent the last three years in graduate school. And those people who I consider my friends, but they're my friends through that context um, specifically right now. And maybe in three years, that context will grow once you aren't seeing them every day and have that sort of singular context and reference. I mean, right when we began, we were improv friends and we would see yeah. each other three times a week or yeah. whatever else. Absolutely. And three, did we rehearse three times a week? Well, we would probably rehearse twice a week. We could perform uh, once a week right, and, and then, then hang, out hang out once a week. Yeah, yeah. And so was, like, yeah, a lot of, most days of the week. It was a consistent, it was a consistent presence. Um, but then eventually you grow past that and out of that and uh, you needed it initially. 
but it's now no longer the uh, the frequency no longer matters for the intensity. Right. Um, and initially, I think that frequency connects to the intensity much more. Yeah, I mean, I know, I know, like when I began school in New York, like I I felt so lonely and lost, and like there was no one I could. I don't know, be close to. And I think the, you know, the camp on a want to swim team to become danger box improv community really saved my life. It does a lot. I mean, the first semester, I don't think I like didn't go outside. It was like, what am I going to do when I go outside? And it's like all this shit happening yeah, that I am crazy. not prepared for. Yeah, man. Um, so, I mean, that's the joy of having the the support that coming to a new place through school did, right? Yeah. Like you had all these other people in the same situation, and it just took a little bit of time to realize that everybody was in the same situation um, to really connect, right? I mean, I have people who either I know from home or have met later in my life who came to New York sort of on their own, and I'm shocked, honestly, by the, like, <laughs> <laughs> the bravery that that takes yeah. to have no contact, yeah. um, no support really you said i'm just going to do this thing and you step into it and then you find a lot of people leave because you there's without a structure to help you sort of integrate into a community and and i don't know how you do it no what so where where did you come from like what what did you bring with you to new york what was your suburb so i grew up in castro valley california which is in the east bay maybe 45 minutes from san francisco yeah um and it was one of these, you know, used to be farmland back in the 30s, and slowly people move out and move out, and um, was a, not necessarily like subdivision suburb, um, but a suburban place. You know, you walked to high school, and you had your neighborhood friends, and it was that sort of context. Um, what I, like, brought with me to New York. Yeah. I mean, I... I think a lot of the intention was to not bring anything with me to New York initially. Um, like every other sort of like 18 year old who's feeling angst and like frustration with their situation. Right, I was so like, you wanted a clean, clean break. break. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, for school, right. We went to NYU. I could have gone to a couple of schools closer to home, but whether it was the closeness to family or being one of like 30 people from my high school to go to the same college, like freaked me out a little yeah. bit. So I came to NYU and the simple fact that there was one other girl from my year who also came to NYU at the same year. She was lovely and a good friend of mine, but it still like made me mad because I'm like, this is my experience. Oh, like I'm the one who's choosing to do this. Um, and the ego that sort of came with that to be like how I'm supposed to be like more interesting and special to go decide to do this thing that no one else is doing. Oh, you're doing it too. Yeah. Uh, I think there were, yeah, there were a few people who came to NYU from my high school, too, but they ended up leaving, at least in my grade. But I didn't have that same anger, just because <laughs> I, I think I assumed that I we would all just get lost uh, and anonymous, you know, in the in the the crush of the city. Right, which I think ultimately happens. I mean, I think there was also some of, I said, you know, that first semester, there was a lot of fear that came with it, too. Oh so we gravitated towards each other yeah, yeah. to begin with. Who, who was it, can you say? Yeah, her name was is still. Let's change it. Her uh, name is Alicia Gillespie. Alicia Gillespie. Um, 
I don't know if I ever. I don't think I met. I don't. She she didn't write like me. She only stayed in New York for two years. I think she oh. left. Yeah, she didn't go all the way through NYU. Okay. Um, for I think a lot of the same reasons that everybody either is able to stay here and is attracted to here, in terms of the sort of the scale of it and the anonymity and however else, and there's some people who realize that they want to be with their families and have these sort of closer, more intimate experiences. What was your plan like what was your dream to like what, what were you seeking in new york um i mean again i think a lot was the simple sense of separation yeah um i mean so fundamentally from the age of a friend of mine dug up because the internet couldn't find anything at this point um a letter that i wrote to like my future self of you know what it is that you're supposed to do and care about and however else and the like the three main cruxes one was to be an architect Two was to, like, be aware of the importance of the environment. Um, and three had to do something about, like, being in a bigger city. Um, and then, so that was my graduate education. I got a degree in architecture. Obviously, I continue to be sort of involved environmentally. Um, and I live here in New York now. So, like, at seven years old, I sort of already knew. It's seven you wrote this year? Yeah, seven to ten. I don't know. But as young. You were yeah, young. as a kid. Not I, in high when, school. No, before that. Wow. Um, so I'd already like figured out the broad strokes at that point, I guess. I mean, it's all circuitous, right? It's right. taken a long time to sort of get to those places and I'm not even still there yet. Um, you're doing good though. Well, sure. I mean, good is e- good is e- to do good is easy to do uh, like specific. Right. Uh, it's hard. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, you're not, you're not letting yourself off the hook yet in terms of, I don't know, like y- you don't, you, you, you're still, you're still looking. You're still, or you're sure, still striving. I don't think, yeah, you should. I mean, hopefully you don't stop doing those things. Right, right. Um, but that doesn't mean that, like, if you're not there yet, that's a problem. Of course. Right? Yeah. So, yeah, so things are good. That's and you're it. happy and you settle into the stuff that works for you. And then yeah. you still try to be conscious of what else could be out there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, you know, the plan, there's always a plan, but there's never, like, a direct route to it. Why why comedy improv? Where did that come from? Um, so I did theater as a kid, and performance was sort of a part of my upbringing. Um, and I think when we go back, right, referring to sort of the relationship you and I have, I think that's where I built a lot of my strong relationships growing up was through theater yeah. and through performance. Same here, yeah. Um, so that attraction was there. I did improv in high school. I remember just being fun, right? I mean, these are the things that you identify yourself with. Um, and you find the people who are like-minded and care about the things you care about and act in the way that you do, and you sort of self-select through some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I met one of our other co-conspirators, Raf. Um, so the first, right, when you come to NYU, again, we say this, like, disassociation, you don't know what you're doing, you have, like, no context of anything, you're scared. So NYU does, and of course everybody goes through this, so NYU does what they can to try and, like, ease you into the city. So there's lots of activities and group this and that and meetups mm-hmm. here and there mm-hmm. that they say come to this stuff and this is new york and mm-hmm. you're gonna love it and it's amazing and you're gonna meet all the people that are gonna be your best friends forever um so i went the first semester with a maybe you know 15 other scared freshmen to the mars 2012 2112 i don't know future restaurant themed restaurant that I don't think exists anymore. Um, that sounds weird. It's very dude. weird. So it's where a, the hell it's was a that? Time, it's a Times Square thing, and it's like um, well, not. A, it's gone. Okay, it's I'm long sure gone. it's gone. I haven't seen it. 
but you know, it's like a themed restaurant about where, Mars. About Mars, and so you like stand in the entryway and the bay doors open and you know dry ice smoke fills the thing and then you walk into this basically applebee's or whatever <laughs> um, but every but with like costumed eight arm like octopus no. aliens i swear to god Come people on. have costumes no so this is aliens yes i mean this is you know new york city is full of lots of people who are trying to act and need to do something oh, in the meantime god. so they put on costumes and serve you hamburgers what did you oh jesus but i what are the i want to know like what menu puns any oh, notable menu puns yeah, no, that's Ugh. too that's too far past oh man um, but that's ridiculous so that's and that's where i met raf where both of us like convinced ourselves that this is something we should do and then showed up and realized immediately that we'd made a mistake. Oh, the um, Mars 20, the Mars yeah, 20, 20, the whole process. Yeah. So the, we were basically the two people like standing in the back corner of the room as far as possible. Um, and commiserate over the fact that this like could freak. We were like scared and it then sounds confused. Terrifying. Um, yes. It was, God. Uh, Ugh. Why would anyone do that? Like, do tourists want tourists want? I think it's a tourist thing. I Ugh. can't. I can't answer. I mean, it doesn't exist anymore. Right, so obviously, no. it didn't really uh, hit the hit the zeitgeist of the of the generation. No. Um, Ugh. So I met her there, and she was also a performer, and we sort of bonded over our interest in that. Um, and then the guy who started the group put up a flyer. She saw it. We went together. Um, ben Wellington. Ben Wellington. Got to get on the zone, brother. Uh, we'll find you soon. Yeah. Um, and so she and sort of brought me in through to the improv to do that. Raf, Raf, you gotta, I gotta find your zone too, wherever you are. Are you in Seattle? Raf's in Seattle. Yeah. All right, great. Come to Seattle one of these days. Um, so that's how I got involved in improv at NYU. Um, and like anything else, the attraction, so the attraction of the group ultimately was for the most part we weren't performers or actors um, well we a lot of us weren't tish people right i mean i guess we weren't we weren't thinking about ourselves the performing arts school right. just in case ultimately NYU. wanting to be professional performers right it was things that we were interested in the arts we enjoyed performing but it wasn't like what we came to new york to do per se we wanted to be around we wanted to be involved with it right and I think that that there was a ease to the group that came out of it. Yeah. People weren't as concerned. They were there because they really enjoyed it. Yeah. They thought it was fun. It wasn't um, because they thought it would mean something to them as performers, uh, at least in my opinion. Right. I think everybody obviously has different experiences and yeah. different reasons. Yeah. Um, but, you know, people were involved in some other things here and there, but it wasn't like you would show up and people would be like, I'm doing this and I'm doing that. Like improv was the thing that we wanted to do. Right. Um, it was, it was sort of, I mean, you couldn't really do too much. Like I, I thought I was going to do all these things, right. I was going to be in an acapella group and uh, all the things, but you sort of have to specialize. Yeah, yeah. You got to find a thing you actually want to focus in on. Yeah. Um, and it, that, so it was, it was for anything else. It was, um, about the social component of it, right? It was people that I got along with. I mm-hmm. thought we were all there for similar reasons. Um, and because it was divorced a little bit from sort of like professional aspirations, it wasn't, there was very little tension. Nobody was sort of concerned about the other people or what they were doing or not doing or how I made them look. Right, or, right. I mean, there were some other groups at NYU that people were angling, right? This was about helping them become the person they wanted to be which is great which is fine but it wasn't 
what I think we were about, and that's what really yeah. spoke to me. Well, you know, and we angling certainly we we rub shoulders with uh, a lot of these these people who are now quite incredibly quite talented, yeah. incredibly successful, and yeah. that's because they knew this is what they wanted. Yeah, and that's and they did it, and they were great at it, and yeah. it's amazing. Yeah, um, but I would not have fit in with that group in the same way that I think I fit in with our group. Yeah. Um, the other piece of it is that it was outlet. Um, you know, you're, I was at school. I was there to study and academically succeed in the things that I wanted to be doing. Metropolitan and, studies for you? And architecture. And architecture. Um, and fine arts. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was doing a lot of school, too. Yeah. And you could show up for two hours on a Tuesday and, like, forget about all that stuff mm-hmm. and let it sort of shed away. Mm-hmm. And some big and, booty. And play some big booty and uh-huh. run around and uh-huh. jump and scream and yell and laugh. Yeah. And, it felt good. So, I mean, the moment I graduated, I think I performed two more times or something. And I realized that the attraction for improv wasn't necessarily the performance. It was about the outlet. It was about the people. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the rehearsals is what I enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Um, the performances were always fun and memorable. And, again, you know, we talk about, like, the plants and everything else. You know, you get to see all your work and you get to make people and have people enjoy it. And there's some outcome to the time that you put into it. Um, but yeah, I enjoyed the process. It helped yeah. me cope. Well, improv has no outcome. That's the thing. Like that's the thing. The the thing that I think was frustrating about improv, and I think my actual my undergraduate education is that all of it is so ephemeral. And I think looking back, well, that you had a very specifically ephemeral uh, education. Yeah. Um, well, right. Uh, so I went to Gallatin, which is the the create your own concentration school, and and the culminating project is this colloquium where you talk about you have an hour and a half conversation about twenty five books that you read, and so it's this conversation that once it's over, it's over, and there's there's no record of it. Maybe you write this five page, you do write this five page paper, sort of saying what you're going to do. But then it's gone forever. And, like, wouldn't it have been nice to, like, have a, a document or a thesis? Wouldn't it have been nice to, like, write a sketch? Wouldn't it, you know? And, like, although I, I have to say that, you know, there are a lot of mem- there are a lot of wonderful memories from our, our improv days. Sure. And so it depends on how you're able to look back on it, right? I yeah. mean, so I did. I had the thesis, and I found it, whatever, a year ago. And it's a printed thing that yeah, has good for you, notations yeah. in it oh. from my reviewers. And oh. so there's a, there's a distinct relationship and memory that I have from that. Whether it has any like application or anything or whatever else, no. What was your thesis on? Um, I dealt with disaster housing... Um, and sort of the government's viewpoint on short versus long-term housing. Um, that that uh, was uh, very prescient. Yes. So I initially was going to look at some other things, but it was during our senior year that Hurricane Katrina happened, mm-hmm. or I guess maybe it was the, our junior year mm-hmm. leading into it. Um, and so I was going to look at other sort of temporary housing issues, um, and obviously this happened, and there was a huge amount of Obviously, the the physical environment and what you had to do to house these people and the issues of resources and all that. But obviously, we know so much of the political question that came in with Katrina in terms of how do you rebuild, where do resources go, what's the role of government, who's responsible for what. Um, Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt, who came in and saved the world, um, supposedly with housing that ended up costing like three times as much (laughs) and was like each individually designed and without real like positive relationship to the local character and sort of failed spectacularly. Oy. Um, but yeah, so Katrina happened and that changed a lot. I mean, I had a friend who 
was like was in DC and was going to drive to New York to like come hang out for a weekend and Katrina happened and he like turned around halfway and drove to Louisiana like wow it was major impact on people and people really tried to get involved um so then I tried to look at historically what sort of happens in mass housing situations and what the government does so I looked at Japanese internment um and oh, how Jesus what the government sort of role in that is and how they talked about it, built it, you know, like politically managed it, what oh. their expectations were for what this thing was. I Fuck. talked about Hoovervilles. Fuck. Um, and the government's sort of role in allowing and or um, destroying Hoovervilles. And oh. then I looked at FEMA housing in Florida um, from Hurricane Andrew. Hurricane Andrew that had happened like six years previously. Yeah. And there were still FEMA trailer cities that were existing from that. Um, in, and who was living there and oh. what the s- issues were. And what it ends up coming down to is that when disaster hits, obviously you have all like the immediate aftermath work. But then it exposes all the other deeper issues that are going on in terms of uh, poverty, health, work, jobs, housing, whatever else. So you have these places that are built as temporary housing that are meant to be there for six weeks, six months, whatever it is. And when six months end, what you find is the people who are still there can't go anywhere else. There's no other options for them, right? And these are the people who didn't really have options to begin with. They were renters. They didn't have savings. They are in disability. So here is a service that's been provided them in the short term because of a disaster, but there's all these other long-term issues that generally government steps in to deal with and help but how do you manage and like transfer one from short term to long term support? So, all right. So, Japanese internment as disaster housing seems like a pretty like that's a pretty bold like claim. You know what I mean? I, I get it. Like I get it. But that's like that. I I would like to talk about that for okay. a moment. So yeah. So the idea. So the disaster there is we're in war. War. Right. So disaster is not necessarily a. Um, it's not supposed to be a coded term, right? It's not saying that the Japanese are a disaster or even that war is a disaster. It's the statement of that there's some, like, immediate and high-frequency event that happens that changes everything. Yeah. Um, and, right, in this instance, it was war. So right. what all of a sudden, in a month, you have to figure out how do we provide housing and services for a huge population of people. I mean, we're seeing this stuff now with refugee crisis. But so who made, who, like, who called for internment? Like, who, like, who I mean, pulled so this, the trigger on that? Well, so this was, this was the government in the first place, right? But, like, who in the government? Did, did you, do you remember? Or uh, like, what's it, is that president? Is yeah, that the I mean, defense department? Right, I mean, I think in the end it's the president who signs off on this stuff. Sure, but, it's but a, like, someone, it was and someone's idea. it works idea. the state, right? And it works Why? at the state level, Why too. did they, like... Xenophobia and fear, and, and I mean, right? That's a whole other subset. No, but it's of, but it's all. I mean, it's 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 inextricably linked to the whole thing. Like it's sure it's why these people are here, right? Is because of these issues of governance and responsibility and citizenship and who do we think deserves and doesn't deserve and belongs and doesn't belong. And I mean, it's a it. I mean, this is a big issue and beyond even what I talked about in, you know, 60 pages sure. of an undergraduate thesis. But that's, like, a huge, like, that, like, I don't know. Like, th- for me, that's, like, a very, like, sparky, juicy claim. And, and like, did you talk theoretically about, like, like, 
I guess the question is, did you talk theoretically and politically about this stuff, or was it more like, okay, so here we need uh, we need corrugated tin and like so, uh, the yeah. design of it? No, it was less about physical design. It wasn't necessarily like, how do you build a better box? Yeah. Um, I mean, the internment in the Hoovervilles was trying to find more historical examples. Yeah, that, and say that's and Hooverville was poverty, like people, like because right. of the this is Great Depression, Great Depression. mostly. Um, and it was people who didn't have other housing, built their own housing in the same way. I mean, these, you know, in the same way that we see uh, flavelas and right. other sort right. of temporary housing in, in poor areas. Right. Um, but the, re- the question is, what was the government's role in this, right? They were tacitly uh, allowed these things to happen and provide some services, but not others. And it's very specific on what they did or did not do. And how does that lead into this other bigger question of governance? What does the government view its own responsibility to its citizens in these situations? And, and just to go back to the internment camps, what like what was the government responsibility? Because essentially, these are prisoners. Correct. And and they write they didn't have freedoms to leave. They were interned. They were you know when we think about internment camps in World War II, obviously you think about. Europe and Jewish internment. Well, right. Um, so, the, I mean, it's similar concept. I mean, these people are prisoners. They're taken out of their homes. They were, I mean, allowed to, I mean, in this instance, they're still citizens. They were allowed to take basically a suitcase. Yeah. And got moved out into these sort of desert barracks, um, far, right, ideally physically isolated from population centers so that they wouldn't pose a threat. So they would be in the dark about what's going on and wouldn't be able to communicate with you know japan was the fear <sighs> uh, yeah it's a i mean it's a very um complex and troubling as many other troubling parts of our history i yeah. mean right now there's a broadway show allegiance allegiance yeah which is happening which is dealing directly with some of these issues mm-hmm. um so it's interesting how we can then look back on this stuff you know 70 years later right um and find what's still pertinent right and Mm -hmm. what still relates and many of the same issues that you deal with any other um crises that we're going through in the country in the world yeah george takai lovely man amazing has only gotten better with age yeah one of those people who's just like ripened into oh yeah fabulous person yeah um um oh man that's intense eric yeah, so, right, so I was, that was, like, the day-to-day was me, like, reading this kind of shit, and then I would go do improv. Yeah. And, and, and that solved a lot of problems. Yeah, and, and similarly, I mean, I, I wasn't, uh, I, I wasn't looking at that, but so I was, I was looking theoretically at, at performance and forbidden things, and, you know, I think, I, I felt like improv was, actually, I, I would have to say that it, it did sort of feel like the person, like, it, it was a place where I was trying to develop skills to become the person I would want to be. And like, I, I don't know, I feel like performance is, has been a part of my life and I want it to be a part of my life. Um, but it was also, I mean, I, I think what you're saying is the environment was relatively free of ego and angling and, and sort of some of the, the darker aspects of what you think of uh, in terms of competition. Right. And And I think what you're saying what's important about performance is still a very personal um, itch you're trying to get to, yeah. right? It's about yeah. expression. It's about trying to work out the things you're thinking about. Yeah. Um, and whether it's music or theater or art, I mean, yeah. 
Right. So the, the biggest thing for myself, and I think I've said this to you before, is like, you know, I work in design stuff and I think about these things, but I don't consider myself an artist. And I think that the re- there's like art and there's design and there's production and there's all these things and they're all associated and they all sort of work together. But art in the end is about message and it's about what you're trying to explore, what you're trying to project, what you're trying to share. Um, and it's not about medium. It's not about process. It's about something internal um, and however you choose to express it. So for me, right, I think of you more as an artist and somebody who has a lot that they're trying to share, work through, express. Um, and that wasn't my relationship with performance mm. um, or the stuff that I do now, right? It's not art. It's not, it might be pretty. It might be aesthetically composed and pleasing. But that, for me, isn't what art or artistic expression um, how it presents itself or how it explains itself. Even. Hmm. That's really interesting. Um, but I, I mean, I think, yeah. right. Are you, am I correct that you still identify yeah. and try and pursue yourself as an artist? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And it's, I, I guess, you know, it's always hard for me to accept when someone says, Oh, I'm, I don't identify as an artist. There's a, there's an immediate resistance that happens in my body. Well, because a lot of what you're trying to do is show people, right? So whether this is like a privileged view or not is I think I'm aware of the concept of being an artist, of how to express yourself, of the ways you can use these mediums to yeah. express yourself. Well, you were a designer. You studied fine art. You Right. But then I like looked interior and said, well, do I have something that I need to say? Is there something that I need to work out through these um, mediums, these ex- artistic expressions? I mean, so there's things I care about and I work through nonprofits and education and other ways of trying to like share those messages of the things that I find important. Um, It wasn't necessarily through art where I know a lot of the work that you do and a lot of work you're interested in is helping people who don't understand the ways that they could express the things they're thinking about and showing them art as a way of being able to share their stories, being able to... Uh, express feelings um, and whether you know people do that through journal or do that through performance you're you're trying to pull the artist out of people yeah trying to say that that's within everybody yeah and you all have something that you want to share and here's how you can do it yeah where i feel like i've gone through some of that self-reflection and obviously this stuff never ends and who you're right i've yet to immediately be like i have this burning issue that i need to express through art and performance okay okay but but you you still do pursue urgent things for yourself in other in other forms. There you were saying there you're nonprofits. You you work with uh, Green Home, or you work with Green Home NYC with uh, the Green City Challenge. Correct. Two groups and and a handful of others over the years. And I mean those both are basically community education groups that do peer to peer learning and sharing about environmental issues mm-hmm. um so for me there i was trying to work in a sort of more practical means of sharing information mm-hmm. um sharing resources that could help people in their decision making um as opposed to um maybe the awareness that i think art can create mm-hmm. um I was trying to drill down to the specifics 
mm-hmm. um, as opposed to the message. Right, right. So you're you're less interested in in existing in a metaphorical, symbolic world. Yeah, I, that maybe is the way to put it. Right, that there's. I mean, again, you know, we're talking about like the garden and other things. Right? Oh, right, you, right. You like, you like, I like to see the the tomato, um, and that that object, that specific outcome provides the part of the satisfaction and i i'm i'm hearing that perhaps the the big difference is is the definition of what art is like i i think i have a very broad notion of what art is and like uh, you know for me like gardening is a is a productive creative generative act um, well right so so you say you have a broad definition what is that broad definition like, are you able to well, actually... you know, listen, so there, there, I heard this talk um, a while ago. Uh, it was at, at the face-to-face conference I went to, and this guy who, oh, what does he work for? Uh, like, Art Place, Art Place, maybe NYC or Art Place USA. Okay. So it's about creative placemaking. He's like a, a head honcho there. And if, I, if I'm remembering this definition correctly, um, art is any generative act... Um, uh, like striving to communicate uh, an urgent human emotion through a, a set of uh, received, uh, accepted conventions. So it's sort of this idea of making something um, in uh, understood, like using a, a, an acknowledged set of materials, um, you know, to uh, express, you know, some truth about human existence. Yeah, so I, honestly, I don't think hearing that that you and I are too far off. I think I personalize it a little bit more. Right? Yeah, I know a lot of art, right? Political art, yeah, yeah, gender-based art. You're dealing with big issues, right? Yeah, that you're trying to explore and and draw awareness to, but it's still. I mean, I think that you can't take art out of the context of the person who created it. Totally. And I think that that's the key piece is that there's a generative idea that an individual has that they need to express, whether it's about their own personal history and biography, whether it's about their relationship to some bigger issue that they find important and valuable. Um, But it's, it's, you know, and again, like, right. It can be any of these conventions. It can be writing. It can be performance. It can be, um, and, you know, maybe we can say that it can be through, like, speaking, right? It can be yeah. this, obviously. Yeah, yeah this is something. It Cozy's can be, you know, doing public education. Yeah. Um, you know, you're creating something in that interaction. Yeah. Um, but I still... Um, there's a question of, like, are you a vehicle for a message? Um, which I think a lot of the stuff that I'm interested in is. I'm finding the stuff that's out there and that makes me interested and in trying to share that stuff as opposed to being the generator of that information, of that message. So here's, uh, here's something, though. So you, uh, Green City Challenge, uh, the, the mission of that seems to be to gamify various issues um, of, like, local environmental things. So, uh, meaning, so uh, can, you, can you talk about, like, some of the games that are a sure. part of... of Green City Challenge? Um, yeah, right. So Green City Challenge fundamentally is trying to help people understand environmental issues yeah. as it relates to day-to-day life. Yeah. 
And there's lots of groups that do this. And there's lots of information out there around these issues um, that if you want to find it, you can. What we are trying to do, and I think what a lot of other people recently are finding, is that people like games. Um, yeah. And anything you can do to kind of find uh, a way to connect is is going to help you ultimately in your messaging, right? It's again, this vehicle, right? You have something you want to say, maybe make a painting, we make a game. Um, because a lot of the environmental education that I sort of have experienced and been a part of in the past, um, it's a lot of talking, right? It's sure. lectures, it's question and answers, or I use talking as writing is similar, right? It's about writing reports and white papers and articles and op-eds and it's super boring. It's in the end. Yeah. And, and, or beyond even, or separate from being boring, it just takes a, a, a heightened level of interest to commit into those details. Right. There's a, there's a, a big ask. There's, you have to like put in a lot of work to right. like, to focus, to yeah. think, yeah. um, to connect what these people are talking about to all the other issues, big and small is going on with you and the world in general. So the idea about a game is that it doesn't, the ask isn't quite as difficult for people. Um, so a few examples is um, we take, you know, simple, um, generally broad issues, things like where you get your food from, composting, electricity use in the home, and take some of these game conventions to it. So we have a match game where you have to match up building materials that have green qualities to them. Um, or sorting games, right, around recycling, and you actually have to sort the recycling. So there's a connection between the physical activity that hopefully helps um, uh, sort of hang the informational piece of it in your brain. And then if you want that more information, you want the detailed stuff, you want the lecture, where you're really going to learn the real information, the, the real bulk of the actionable stuff, then hopefully this has sparked that next move and how you can start to transition people into going on to the sanitation website and learning how to actually recycle and what you can recycle uh, as opposed to like handing them a pamphlet that says this thing exists go look at it um, maybe the game helps them uh, remember it enough so that when they go home they'll you know click forward and to make these games though requires design it requires a certain there's a poetics to game making like there there is there is aesthetic skills there's poetic decision making that needs to occur in the construction of these um i mean i think you call it poetic i think i call it problematic um, i mean you mean like problem solving yeah is that it's a like a, i mean i think it's easier to make the connection between games and whatever else but you know it's a puzzle you have these yeah. you have an outcome you're trying to work towards you're trying yeah. to but iterate away until communicating it. Yeah, but that's true. And when you do a painting, that's true. When you write a poem, like there's a there's a there's an outcome. Yeah, but that's again, it's a process, right? So the difference is, and I think where we're not necessarily that far off, but potentially fundamentally very different. Yeah, yeah. It's, is what the the initial generator of that is. Right. So the, for the, the stuff, source of right? It. So the stuff that I'm doing, I think, could be artistic. Yeah. Um, and what it's doing. But that doesn't necessarily make me identify as an artist and its yeah. creator. Okay. Okay. Um, because, I right, when I'm producing something around how to recycle, 
It's something I find important, but it's not something that I'm trying to generate from within myself to okay. work out. It's information that I found out there I think is important, I think is interesting, and I want to help other people think it's important and interesting. And I think that's a goal of many artists as well. They want to share information, emotion, experience with others. I personally believe that as an artist, there's a more immediate uh, emotional, personal connection to that spark mm. um, than the kind of things that I do. And I don't think one's necessarily better than the no, other. No, I no. just think that they operate a little bit differently. Um, where, like, I don't take the work that I do personal in the same, right? Like, yeah. there's a level of removal right. and separation from the work that I'm doing in myself, where I think an artist delves so much deeper into... Um, the connection between themselves and the work. What do you take personal in your in your life? Like, what things really do you really really get to you? Really, you take on? Um, maybe not a lot. Is is <laughs> maybe the not helpful answer? No, no. I I mean I because um, I, I mean I see that. Like I see you. Something I wanted to chat about with you is is as an outside observer, you know, looking at your very Zen lifestyle. You have a very, I don't know, you have a very minimal, relaxed, kind of, uh, you know, glowing way of moving through the world that I find very admirable. And ni- it's nice to be near and to observe. Um, uh, thank you. I mean, I think there's a grass is greener mindset a little bit here. Um, Maybe. Right. I mean, are you saying that you think that there's, I, I have like an unaffected nature no uh i would say that you i don't know you you do a lot of work to figure out like what works for you and what feels good for you and you do that thing sort of without any friction ah there's definitely i mean there's always friction um i think i think you can either think of the friction as impeding the process or helping the process. Um, so sometimes when you run into a barrier or you run into a conflict or a question and you don't understand, um, you can sort of like wallow in the details of that and work it out that way. Or you can um, like turn around. <coughs> and I think that and depending on circumstance situation, both work. So sometimes, you know, like, not every problem is meant to be solved. Like, not every struggle is, like, for the greater good. Like, sometimes things don't work out because they're not supposed to work out. And it's hard because you're not good at it or you're not meant to be good at it or it, the world just doesn't think that this is the right time or place. And there's and for me, I can accept that. In many instances, because... In the grand scheme of things, these aren't, like, real problems. These aren't real detriments. I mean, this is the the privileged issues that we deal with. I mean, it um, sounds like sounds like Buddhism a little bit, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, there's I mean, there's hints of that. I mean, I grew up um, in, a, in a sort of non-religious but um, religiously aware household. Mm-hmm. My grandparents were Lutheran. I went to church. I'm baptized and confirmed. I have that. Um, but then there's at home, you know, my father is Buddhist and those things and mindsets pervade um, in some respect as well. Um, I mean, you know, if you want to chalk 
I mean, the big thing is like someday you die, and that's and it's like period, like end. Sure. Um, so what does the rest of it, right? Like if there's, you know, where they say the death and taxes, like those are the only things that exist that you can like count on. Right. Um, and so, you know, you take the cliche and you say, okay, well, what about that's actually true? And you're like, well, yeah, you know, whether you do something or don't do something won't change that outcome. Um, so find the struggles that you're willing to like struggle through and then identify the ones you're not and you can walk away from them. Um, and again, I'm talking about this in a context where like my struggle isn't about paying a medical bill or having enough food or, you know, whatever other issues of health and family and relationship. I mean, these are, these are the simple things of day to day life that either people can and do get caught up in. And I think when they do, it's more of a, um, an outlet for other things um that's not necessarily like the situation at hand or not so but yeah so we enjoy a lot of privilege both of us i mean and and that you know and so then like what problems are there really and i right what do i really have to worry about not a whole lot (sighs) Um, right and i i know you're right but i also feel very anxious all the time about all sorts of things well, and I think where I maybe I was trying to get to before and maybe want to know about you is I think um, it's a connection thing, right? And maybe yeah. this goes back to the art question about like what you're trying to generate right. internally and right. what you're sort of dealing with and right. struggling with. And um, hmm, how do I want to continue on this line of thinking? Um, that there's something very wonderful and magical about being affected. I mean, anxiety it may not be a great um, thing to deal with on day to day, but I think it points to a deeper beauty that you care enough about something that you're anxious about it. Um, hmm. And you're, I mean, obviously there's other anxiety disorders and there's other right. things that no, like but exist, I, but in, if, I you're, see what you're if saying. you get anxious about something, it's because you're thinking about it and you care about the outcome. And that's a good thing. Um, to some respects, I think that some of my mindset is good, and sometimes it's not good because I'll disassociate from whatever an issue is, and I won't be anxious, and that lack of being anxious um, is to shield myself from outcome. Hmm. Are you anxious about anything? Sure, it comes and goes. Um, and I don't think it's... Um, long-term things right but you every week you go through i mean the things that everybody deals with whether it's uh work and money and lifestyle and your partner and your friendships and your relationships i mean you always question is this right is this wrong is this working um what i find generally is my desire for a specific outcome doesn't really impact that outcome um so you get anxious, you think about it, you worry about it, and then it's something happens one way or the other. And then it's sort of in the past, and then it's happened. Um, and then you get anxious about the next thing, and you think about it, but then that one passes too. And So they come, absolutely, and some circumstances are more stressful than others and whatever else, but then they go away. What has been the most stressful experience in, in recent past? Um... I mean, probably a lot 
is work-related, I guess. I mean, I don't know. That's probably an easy answer for most people to sort of immediately push to. Uh, I graduated in May. Usually you graduate from a program and you're going to go pursue whatever it is that you've studied. Um, so you're right, like I said before, you know, I think the long-term plan here is to be an architect and whatever that means and how you define that. Um, I am currently sort of back what I was doing before going to school. Um, I'm pretty comfortable with it and I'm like happy about it, but that doesn't mean it's not like anxious to think about what did I spend the last three years doing what does that mean for the next 20 years? Um, I mean, separate of that, I got married last year, and that changes your thinking uh, fundamentally. Um, I generally am a selfish person, and I don't necessarily mean that in a bad way, but in the way that when you're on your own, that's how you operate. You think about what you want, need, and then you pursue those things. And you know you take other people into account, but it's secondary. Now that I'm married... Um, there's a real conscious effort to try and change that thinking. You want to think in a plural way, right? My decisions aren't my decisions anymore. It's our decisions. Um, and we're partners in this. And we, the things that I do have immediate impact on my partner in the way that they have immediate impact on me. Um, so I can't externalize the, um, the impact of like what I think and do. Um, so with that comes more general thinking about your life and planning. So now my, uh, right, going back to like a non-profit or even like a business thing, you know, you have your one-year plan, five-year plan, ten-year plan, whatever else, and you're supposed to be thinking about those things going forward in order to be operating and, and impacting your decisions today. And I always operate under like a one-year plan. Like as long as things are working out for me in the next year-ish, like that's fine. I don't have to worry too much beyond that. But now there's more, there's more of us, there's two of us. So now I'm thinking five years, 10 years. Um, and what do you do to make those things work? What do you think will be the plan and the path to get wherever it is that you want to be uh, financially, emotionally, however else. So that's also, I think, um, cause for anxiety, right? There's a lot more unknown, but it's real in that you've begun I've, like, started the gears on this. What's really fascinating is that you've been with Minerva for 10 years, and you, you just got married like, yeah. last year. and this is the mindset change, right? And that's, I mean, that's fascinating to me that, like, this, this ritual has, has transformed your entire life. Well, and, and right, and right, you talk about marriage as a ritual, and I think that's very accurate, right? We made a conscious statement that we're gonna there's a switch now right we were together for a long time and we would have been together for a long time and will be together for a long time whether or not we were married yeah um but regardless of that there's still a conscious statement that we made through the the um system of marriage that like well this is how we're gonna go about this um but, but you i mean you know like your partnership, I mean, you were a partnership before the ritual. I would, I have to Yeah, imagine. but in a different way. I mean, again, it was still, and uh, it was still a, my decision and her decision for everything that was going on. Um, obviously, we communicate and we consult and we care about the opinion of the other, 
Um, but it was still other, right? It was, well, I'm interested in this, and I think this is important. I hope that Minerva does too. Um, if she doesn't, well, maybe that's okay, right? She can think about the things that she thinks important, and she can operate in the lifestyle that she wants, and to a degree I can still operate in the lifestyle that I want. And we still overlap, and it still works, and we care for each other, and the day-to-day, you know, the practicalities of relationships continue to be good. Um, but there's still, a, in my opinion, a, a level of disassociation and selfishness and thinking of I versus us, and um, even if you've been together for a long time. Fascinating. And now there is, you, in your mind, it is us, and there, is, there are not these separate selves. I mean, trying. I think, right, whether or not... This is the choice that I've made and how I want to change and think about the relationship. I don't know if it, you need to. I think a lot of people still I operate see. individually. I don't think I that see. that's marriage is how you're supposed to do this or this is exactly what marriage means. But we got married and with me through marriage um, want to change in that way. That's I um, see. So so in you, sort of this this is the shift that has, has been awakened in you through marriage that you are striving for you're striving to sort of let go of past selfishness there is like that there is this big shift that sure. has happened i think so i mean i mean and it's marginal at points and it's incremental um but that's the what i'm trying to work towards i mean not that our relationship was one of convenience before but our relationship was still convenient a lot of the um, ways that we interacted and shared and cared for each other was because we continued to be on the same parallel but still individual paths. I mean, we met when I was 20. It was a long time ago, and you're very young, and a lot changes in that time. Yeah. We were lucky that the changes that we went through, whether um, some is you know sort of through osmosis, obviously, because we've been very close for a very long time, um, but some is also a happenstance that we changed in the same ways and continue to care about the same things. And, um, you know, the, the, you know, relationships are about personality. It's about, I still think, you know, interests and the things that you think about on a daily basis. And for the most part, we continue to change in the same way. Um, 10 year relationship, Eric, like no one had, like very few people have a 10 year relationship at all. Sure, I don't know. At your yeah, age. Well, yeah, I don't know, but it happened. Right? Our age. And that's, and that's part of it. Like, that wasn't necessarily the plan, but it happened. And it continued to happen, orga- I mean, you know, organically. Yeah, I what's think, the plan? It? I mean, you know, there's fucking, who has Well, a- that's ultimately, I think, what marriage is, right? The plan right, is to say, right. I'm going to commit to you. That's right. the plan. It's us. I see. We're doing this thing. Yeah. I mean, you know, I th- you know, marriage, I think, has a lot of different definitions for other people. But for me, like, me marrying Minerva is saying, okay, me, this is, this is it. This is it. And when I'm 60, this is going to be it. Yeah, um, and the other things will work themselves out around uh, the commitment that we're making. Mm-hmm. Where before there's some inverse, right? Where the commitment will work its way around all the other things that you deal with in your life. So whether it's work or other relationships or this and that, you, those things happen, and you focus on those things, and then the commitment to each other not necessarily secondary, but is responsive to those other pieces. Interesting. Where now the other pieces are responsive to the relationship, the the central partnership. Yeah. So whether it's the emotional stuff, which I think is harder to pin down many times, but in many instances, the practical things. Yeah. So where do you want to be? What do you want to do? Yeah. 
those choices when it comes to marriage or right, ultimately family for people. Right. I mean, you hear about constantly the moment. I mean, my brother has a daughter. I have a niece. Um, and the moment she was born, like the the switch flipped, and his thought process, what he cared about, why he was making the choices he was making, changed. Yeah. Um, so I view it similarly. Interesting. Your reasons change, and yeah. then. Um, that is a big tenant for me about the commitment. Yeah. Hmm. Why architecture? Ah, that's a good question. And that's probably one that is more confused now than it ever was. Um, I mean, a lot of what we talked about is, is um, trying to make something, create something, seeing cycles, outcomes... Um, I think architecture fits into a lot of those things, right? I mean, the the standard view is that you become an architect to make a building, and then this building becomes a sign of your work. And um, the tomato, the, the tomato, the building and the tomato are the same thing. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely um, something that comes from that, right? You want to say and point to something and say. I worked, right, this, like, ether that I talked about before, like, you work and, like, stuff happens and then you never think about it again or nobody thinks about it or knows about it right. or it's just sort of whatever. Right, the ephemeral. Right, where here's a tangible thing that ideally matters a little bit to somebody, whether it's just you or other people. Um, and and then connects to the ephemeral stuff. So I still think, like, as a building... Um, has influence and is influenced by all those other emotional, um, psychological, political things that we have a lot of trouble like pinning down. So whether it's economics, art or things, home, art or things, or Eric, art things, all those things that artists do. But architects way. are not artists. Oh hell no! Oh my god! Why not? The worst thing that could ever. That, in my opinion, one of the worst things is when architects start considering themselves artists. Tell me because about a building that. isn't about right. You want to put something out there, and you want to view your work having some outcome and meaning. And I, I agree with that. But the building you make isn't about you. And for me, that's what I, an artist is. An artist is about this generative thing that I have interior to myself that I'm going to put out in the world. And architecture isn't about you. You as the architect are a vehicle for solving a, something else that's going on, some other problem. Whether it's an emotional question of home and stability, and you can get into a lot of other the things I think art gets into. Oh, man. Um, or practical other practical questions of what a building does and functions and, um, and means. The art, right? Um, I think an artist should have their name on the piece, right? We <clears throat> sign our art. Okay. And I think that's incredibly valuable. Okay. I think that that... And I, you know, and, the, and whether it's through the commodity, right? Like, a piece of... A painting that has the name Matisse on it means something different to people than a painting that doesn't have the name Matisse on it. Right. So that person, I think, is very valuable to what the art is. But I don't lo- think a name should be on a building. So like Stark text, like Gary and I don't Frank think Lloyd, right? I don't think it provides the value that I think a building should provide. It provides different values, many of them economic, right. usually. Right. Um, so not to say that it doesn't do anything. It just doesn't do what I am interested in. Um, I think I think where I'm I'm getting stuck is that 
I mean, I I hear I hear what you're saying about uh, you know art art is signed by the artist and the art it is it is the identity of the artist and infuses the piece with its sort of meaning and value. But at the same time, I don't necessarily I don't know if that's the best kind of art. Like that's not necessarily for me the most interesting kind of art. Like I agree. I think that. The, the, what, how you're describing the job of an architect also seems to me like the job of an artist. It, it is someone who has a, a specific set of skills, like Liam Neeson, you know, who... Um, is Liam Neeson our, like, identity of artist? No, no, I'm just... He has a particular set of skills, apparently. I, that, it was a... Like, cool. like ass-kicking skills? Ass-kicking skills. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, an artist is serving... A community too. I think, like at least the the artists that I would like to to uh, think about, or or that I would want to count myself among, are serving a particular community. Yes, they they have you know insight into their own emotional landscape and the emotional landscapes of other people, and a command of of a various set of conventions and things. But there is a cert- I I think that the world would be a better place if egos were less prominent, you know? And, and I, I think the artist that you're describing sounds like, uh, has a, a very forward facing ego. And I agree that architects should not have that forward facing ego because a building needs to be safe and, and serve the people who use it. But I think there's also, there's a way to serve others through art too. Like that, they, the kind of art that I'm thinking about serves other people beyond the okay. artist. I, um, That's fair. I mean, I, I think that for me, the ego is what's exciting about art. Interesting. That it is about somebody putting something really out there. Yeah. Um, and trying to put a mark um, within an existing conversation, right? They're one of many voices. Yeah. But it's still an individualized voice. And yeah. I think that's what's exciting is the conflict and the conversations that come out of it. And I think you only get that when you have a strong identity to the work. Mm-hmm. And I think that that strong identity is the what's exciting and valuable about art. I think the... Right, I mean, urban planning, and there's lots of talk of, you know, what the urban environment does and how it converses with these other things. But I don't think that that conversation is the same as the art conversation and how it tackles questions and issues so yes a building should be dealing with the environment or it should be dealing with economics or it should be dealing with um, culture and integration and however else but i don't think that the what a building adds to that conversation is the same um, as what a piece of art would add to that conversation and i mean i mean we're sitting here on this roof we're surrounded by buildings um it impacts us, it affects us in a way, and it's an, a very important, but who knows who made any of these buildings? Nobody. I don't Who knows? It doesn't matter. <laughs> it does. I mean, I guess it, well, it depends. But you care. Not really. Oh, I mean, not really. Like, the person <laughs> behind the building isn't important to the building. The building is something separate, hmm. and it it's part of this physical space, and it's, you know impacts us absolutely and, and so I, many I people really were the architecture impacts us and they were implicated i mean there were the you know people who built the building there's the like you know utilities people sure. there's very the, important know. to the building but not necessarily um right so there's like 
right? The building is the four walls, and there's like the, the what's inside the four walls and what's outside the four walls. Yeah. What's inside the four walls? I mean, yes, all these people are incredibly important. That doesn't exist otherwise. You yeah. need these people. But I don't think it's still, right? I mean, like the guy putting down the tile floor, like is this the expression of this man or woman no. doing it? No. Um, now, when we sit here and we like look at these buildings, there's also an impact that it provides on us. And it, you know, stitches into an f- urban fabric and, you know, you see one next to the other and, you know, space and relationships and proportions and all these things. Color, I mean, all these things that they do that any other view, any other visual, you can look at a building, you can look at a tree, they have similar visual impact. Yeah. Um, but again, you know, it's it's part of this. Um, bra- I, I think it's, it sits as pieces of a broader view where do you need to know, like, is the tree an oak or an elm to enjoy the tree? No. I, for me, not necessarily. Some people do, but, yeah, me, I don't right. care. Yeah. So the same thing for me, the building, like, is this a certain style or that style? Like, did this person build it or that person build it? That doesn't change what I think is interesting or valuable about the building. Right. Again, is, yeah. for me with art, I think that the backstory, the history, the conversation, the conflict that this thing gets put into is incredibly important right. to the piece. All right, Eric. So you haven't listened to The Cozy Zone before. Um, no, I'm, uh, I have no idea what this so, is really supposed to be or how this is going to No, well, go. so let me tell you. So this is uh, the every quest, every Cozy Zone uh, ends in this, in this way. Okay. Um, so I'm, uh, I'm actually a, uh, a representative uh, of the Cozy Zone Foundation, uh, which is a, uh, uh, an enormous uh, charitable foundation that commissions collaborative artworks between two artists. Okay. Um, and I'm, what I'm hearing is you don't necessarily uh, you know, identify as an artist. I do very much. And I, it, it, you and I are, have been given an unlimited amount of funds to create a piece of art together. Okay. So, you know, it, it's kind of too good of an opportunity to pass up. Sure. So perhaps, perhaps you'll have to maybe go enroll as an, an artist, you know, as someone to create art. But basically our task is to conceptualize a collaborative art project. Both you and I would have to, like, sign it, you know as you were saying, to make it ours. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need to conceptualize it and come up with a name. Okay. Um, so I think what's exciting about this is that it's collaborative, right? That's right. And for me, um, that is a freeing um, and easier concept to work with somebody because then you're creating, again, this is like internal external thing that, you and I find something in the middle. That's between right. The two of us. I also find that very uh, exciting. Um, so, you know, this is the instance where I can then. There's like a strategy to it, and right. there's like something fun in that process. Yeah. So, but also, unfortunately, I, you know, for you, like I, I'm maybe I'm going to try and like push a little bit. Like what? Like what is urgent for Eric Navala Lee? Like what is the like. What is the the what is what is living inside of this you know this easygoing kid from the bay? <laughs> like, what do we need to talk about? Like, what do we need to tackle? What is urgent? What is urgent for you? Uh, I think what's urgent for me and what we need to tackle are different things. Okay. So you know, what's urgent for me is all the personal stuff. Um, you know, the urgency of. 
um, what you're having for lunch, like the urgency mm-hmm, of, mm-hmm. you know, where you're going, how do you get there? That I don't find, um, that is not where I necessarily find like the inspiration to create something. Mm-hmm. So then I, I think it's for me, I look to external things. Um, and where architecture fits into this is again, is this means of like mediating, um, and sort of representing bigger issues. So, so you, you want to do some architecture based. Yeah. Thing. So I think it's architecture and I think it's, um, I mean, I think what we're finding a lot, the thing that I potentially spend a lot of time thinking about, um, that's an issue here in New York an issue in a lot of other cities is the question of sort of affordability and diversity. Okay. Um, how do you build a space that is accessible to different incomes, different cultures, language, race, gender, all of these things, Mm -hmm. um, and is inclusive of those concepts. Mm -hmm. Um, and make it in a way that people feel ownership. Mm-hmm. Um, so I might crib a little bit from an existing project that's out there um, that a couple of different artists have done. Um, and I honestly can't remember names right now, but someone who's smarter than I will know and recognize one happened on the High Line or is currently happening on the High Line. Um, and one is sort of a, a arts education, both about sort of building your city. Oh. Um, is one it, Is it like a guy who... It yeah, has like cardboard and basically he a kids huge kit of things mm-hmm. that you can put together and decide how your city feels, operates, <coughs> connects. Yeah, where are the things that you want? Um, so I think a project along those lines, where right. a single building is exciting and I think has a lot of challenges and fun and whatever else to it. But if I wanted to put a project out there that I think. Um, I would enjoy and get value out of it would be something that provided tools for others mm-hmm. um, and let them create. Okay. okay. So, right. I mean, this is me sidestepping the question of like, what do I want and no. what is impertinent no, and no, valuable no, 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 and no. I, needs to get out there. That's not um, sidestepping it. Um, but okay. So, and we have a lot of money, so we're, we're probably going to build a city here. Okay, are we going to, like, find a desert somewhere? And, well, like, that's the question. Is it a desert? Is it is it in the middle of the ocean? You know, the water levels are rising, you know? Are we going to relive water world, you know? Are we going <laughs> to, like, have these floating cubes that, you know, you can sort of, like, paddle together and, like, you know... That sort of sounds fun. Like, this huge envoy. I guess, like, storms are a little scary. Right. I would say, why don't we go into... Um, Let's go into something that has that there's already something existing. So I don't think it's a virgin place. I don't think it's okay. the desert. I don't okay. think it's the ocean. I think we find like an old airport or something. Okay. Sort of like Floyd Bennett Field or, or yeah. something like that. We, we go there and we go somewhere that already has some identity and some context um, because I think that that's... Very important. Yeah, yeah. I don't think you start. Because then then it becomes this ego thing, right? If I have a blank canvas and I fill whatever whatever I want, um, I want it to be responsive. So I think we need a place where there's a community. um, An airport. Well, an airport Uh, is an open chunk of land that still has a physical relationship and context in some other place. And are you thinking like an abandoned airport or a functioning airport? Like what are you... That's interesting. I didn't thought about it. Maybe we just take... Okay. Let's, we're going to make some declarative statements. So we're going to take over, like, terminal 
six at JFK. Okay. Whatever. We're going to kick out American Airlines. Okay. And we're gonna, See ya. And we're going to take it. And then this is, we'll give the opportunity for the people who travel through New York um, to say what, right? This is, so this is where we're right. We're going to, we're just going to make a project of its own. Um, rather than this being about the people who live there, let's find out the people who don't live there. Right. But so still have a connection, a relationship, an understanding of what a place might be. Okay. So we're going to kick out American Airlines and we're going to take, you know, a month worth of airplane travelers mm-hmm. that come through JFK yeah. and we're going to have them rebuild that terminal and what they think uh, their relationship of the city should be. And so it's a, it, they, it's, it's to scale. Like you, you, can you give me a sense of like what scale we would be using? Cause you, I've seen some models that what are quarter inch models, half inch models. Yeah, enough to inhabit, right? You want to be able to. Oh, like, you want to like it's like. Well, inhabit is like there's full scale, but there's also you know doghouse size or whatever. Else. Sure, so sure. It's not when something gets too small, then you can you can separate yourself a little bit, right? Right. It's like so playing with Legos, doghouse style. Yeah. So, but what do you have a like? Is there a a scale like? Is there a number? Can you you uh, quantify that scale? Um, let's say quarter scale. So quarter if something okay. should be a hundred feet. It's 25 feet. Wow. Okay. So big, still big, huge. Okay. We got the money. So why yeah, not yeah. Great, great, great. We have a lot, we, we unlimited, so we could frankly build our own terminal in the airport, but I do like the idea of having it connected to existing infrastructure and I'm excited by the sort of international scope of it. And so we would have to have, we would ha- Okay, so everyone, everyone who exits, we we would have to re we would have to reconfigure the airport. I don't think we should kick out American Airlines. I mean, you know, fuck American Airlines, but like, you know, uh, they're they're my sponsor. You see, <laughs> no, they're not. It's just the Cozy Zone Foundation. So let let's like re let's let's refurbish the airport so that to exit the airport you have to go through this uh, this experience this exercise. Unless you like, there's an emergency, you really have to go. But like, you will necessarily walk by this. Right. This is like the air train. You got to get on exactly. it. Exactly. You got to exactly. Um, and okay, and we're and what kind of so what materials? You probably kind of you would need a relatively lightweight. I mean, 25 feet is still enormous. But in order to wield that, like, are there are there construction uh, like crews standing by to do what you're saying, or, do you, or is it self-operated construction equipment? Yeah, it, well, it could be all robot. Right? Robot. Oh, I see. Ah, ah, good. So you can work at a at a smaller scale to work on it. I and see. And you're moving the little trigger and yes. the little thing, and that connects to it. I see. Human sized, great, great, great. truck sized, totally. airport, airplane sized robot great. that'll uh, execute. So essentially, so uh, so what I'm imagining is sort of like the uh, what's it called in the Queen's Museum, the um, the pana uh, the panorama. Do you know in the Queen's oh, Museum? Oh, the full like the full scale model. Yeah, of the city, the, right? The full city. Yeah, yeah. So it would be something like that, but yeah, you can then... But you'd manipulate it, and then it manifests itself through this these automated robots. In a real way. And rather yeah. than just being a representation of what's there, you're actually the one who's um, dictating right. the space and the objects and the... And I imagine there would have to be time, there would be construction hours, and then there would be tour hours, 
Well, I think as this is a, as a as an ongoing piece, there will always be some things that are built. Yeah. Some things that are being built. Some things that are being taken down and replaced. Right. Um, it's just I'm thinking about safety. You know, like if there's if construction is going on, would I mean, if, and if someone's like walking amongst this to like check out what people have done, I I guess I would want like some stillness, but maybe not. But I, yeah, um, you can. Wow, practical question of safety. Um, I mean, everyone can get a hard hat. We can okay, okay. build some. Uh, that's hard with lice. You know, you have to. <laughs> I guess you get to. We have. We you can keep your yeah, own hard hat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and you it, could probably design your own hard hat. There'd probably be like a lovely 3D printer that like prints you out a very a custom hard hat. Immediately. Yeah, yeah that's nice. Um, yes, and I think that. In the end, if we're doing this all by robot, I mean, there's some separation between you as the person and the thing that's being immediately constructed. Um, so I think some of that stuff you're seeing from afar, um, and then more as pieces are uh, more substantially put together, you can sort of get in and around it. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that. I'm wondering, too, sort of my... Um you know, my dream would be sort of like the interiors of these places, too. Like, if you construct, like, a cultural center, it might be nice to then, like, zoom in and, like, actually, you know, curate a season for said cultural institution or, like, mm -hmm. you know, create the menus for the restaurants that are there. You know, like, I would love to be able to zoom in pretty, okay. in a pretty detailed way. Okay, so I'll do the Sim City, okay. and you can be the Sims. Great, great. Right? I'll you, be the Sims. Yeah, you can help inhabit. Great. Great. What do we call this damn thing? Ooh. Um, Airport City. Just got to start us off. In a bad, the first bad idea. That's my, that's my technique is sort of offering the first bad idea. Um, Airport City. Terminal. Terminal. Oh, yeah. Wonderful. Yeah, well, terminal has all sorts of related uh, definitions we can blend in there. Okay. Terminal. So Terminal. Terminal. Is there a number you're fond of? <laughs> terminal 8? No, right. No, there is Terminal 8. Well, that's what I'm saying. What I'm saying is there's Terminal in terms of, like, airport, and there's Terminal in terms of, like, end. Right. And end is beginning, and we can... Right. So Terminal beginning. How about that? Terminal beginning? Terminal entrance? Terminal start? Terminal start? Terminal 1? Term terminal 0? Uh, terminal. And then just like 10 spaces. 10 spaces. Terminal, maybe. Uh, it's uh, blank, right? Dash? We have, people are supposed to fill that oh, in. So, but like a line. Yeah. Terminal underline. Terminal, like fill in the blank. Right. Terminal blank. Terminal blank? Yeah, I'm, I'm committed to that. Terminal blank. Um, Eric, uh, I have to tell you my favorite part of performing improv with you. There's there's two two distinct things Please. that I'd like to bring up uh, to have on the record. Um, most of your initiations, if I remember cor correctly, um, were like a very anxious, anxious person. Like you'd be like, oh guys, I, uh, I don't know where this is. Like you like lost something or someone, and like there was some ho a horrendous thing that had befallen you. You were always like so anxious. Um, okay, so improv for me was like coma. I would like you don't remember. I don't remember anything that I would ever do or say, and then would wake up afterwards oh and it would God. be done. Um, but that's very interesting mm -hmm. because 
that sort of runs counter to all the ways I've described myself. That's right. Up until that yeah, moment. You are a frantic, you are like we're a frantic, terrified force. Well, right. Improv, right. All the ways that we like mediate ourselves and think about ourselves, improv cut right through all of that. So in the end, I'm clearly a very anxious, nervous individual. Interesting. So your, your, your true, your true spirit comes forth. And then secondly, you are always, uh, one to accomplish very impressive physical feats. Um, there, I think Tim's family recalls a story of you like, uh, initiating a totem pole. I think you would often like jump on my shoulders or invite other people to jump on your shoulders. In Chicago, you like scaled a, a pole in the middle of the the stage. Um, and you know what? I think it's the same uh, root piece, right? This is like the adrenaline pumping. It's like when your baby gets run over by a car and the mom lifts the bus. Uh, <laughs> she doesn't remember. She doesn't remember doing that. How do you do this? Your baby gets run over by a car. <laughs> the mom is just like, I gotta lift this bus. The only way. My baby so. will be fine if I lift this bus. No, I, I know what you mean, though. <laughs> she, that, she will never remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. Uh, so yeah, somehow the the infinite uh, acts of strength uh, came out as well. Yeah. So uh, that was that was a pleasure, Eric. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, improv and this whole thing. Uh, do you have any questions for me? Um, to round out or to, to connect back into the conversation? Whatever. Had? Anything. You can ask me anything. There's always a, an a, as, you, as you know, there's a ask me anything component to Cozy Zone. I've just been grilling you for Yeah, I have been hanging out talking. I guess, yeah, I guess I'm curious more about um, sort of the Cozy Zone in general, right? You've been into a lot of places now with yeah. a lot of people. Yeah. Um, how do you feel like stepping into what theoretically is something very um, not necessarily private but intimate about someone else's life? It feels very natural, frankly. Like, I don't know. I, I'm really, it's always extremely exciting and grateful. Um, and, you know, I think like people aren't going to do, like people aren't going to say yes if they don't want to do it. You know, and so there's sort of this implicit consent of, yeah, here we are. Like, let's 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 do this. And so, have you had the reverse invitation? Have you invited everybody into your cozy zone? I haven't yet. Um, I have maybe off the record. I have off the record, but never never on the record. Um, but that you know, that's something. Uh, with my dad, I I did one in the original cozy zone, like on our our couch. Uh, uh, we would sit in the couch so and watch friends shared. There was a shared cozy zone. Because um, it's interesting for you to come in and share yourself with me in a place that has resonance for me. Yeah. Um, so to understand more about, right? This is an ask me anything. But right. I'm interested in you in your space. Oh yeah. Um, and that I think. In the way that you elicited so much out of me today, right, came from context, right. Um, so it's harder to right because then I'm curious about like you within. It's all right. A lot of this is focused on me, so it's a question about like you in this moment in relationship to me and the things that I think and feel right, right. where I am. Right. Um, so you're both a participant, but you also get to be the observer. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think so. I mean, the 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 design of this is also like I. 
you know, we sort of both spoke about like our, our mania coming to New York and our fear and mm-hmm. like all that stuff. And I think that me going to other people's cozy zones is, is frankly like a learning experience to like feel better or find places like see how other people feel better in order to like help me think about how to feel better in my own space. Okay. Um, but like, you know, I, I think, you know, there's a lot of places that are not cozy for me. Like work isn't cozy. You know, I'm trying to make home more cozy. Um, I know we're getting a little chilly. Uh, right. Cold isn't necessarily cozy at yeah. this point. Um, but no, uh, so, so this is helping you. I'm mean, like anything else, right? You're now getting contact. You're seeing how other people. Yeah can be comfortable yeah and i think that's really valuable right because it helps you understand um what else we could all be doing yeah and i think you know and i and really it's an excuse like i my agenda in cozy zone is really to talk about the creative process and sort of you know be in a place where you're vulnerable and like i i feel like for me my cozy zone is a place where i can dream about uh, different projects like I'm thinking about going to the symphony you know and like sort of falling asleep to like the amazing music and like re- and having like amazing like visions and uh, yeah and uh, like it's it's incredible there and like going to art museums and like hating all the art that I'm seeing and it, and like in that sort of anger and vitriol coming up with my own solutions like these are uh, cozy zones for me like sort of cultural places of, of cultural um generation or, or things like that okay well then as somebody who's now for the first time been to this rooftop uh what does this elicit for you or has this elicited anything for you oh creatively um because this has been a this is a very like simple representation and manifest i think of a lot of things that i think about and how i operate um, I mean, so I th- has this done anything for you? Yeah, I mean, I think about like, I think about the the buckets, the like the like sort of this 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 idea of of beauty and failure. Like, I I'm I love failure, you know, and like the buckets are all fucked up, and there's all these like delicious weeds that are growing, <laughs> and all these dead stalks, and but this beautiful kale that's growing, and this beautiful and thinking about this closed system, and like how you are really working to you know wrap yourself in this this complete loop, as you were saying. Um, and how like that is that is something I would want to strive for myself is thinking about like how can all aspects of my life nourish each other um, and i think I think it 's very poetic up here um, and like finding the right buckets and and you know and and just laboring to this to to make this happen and you were telling me before we started recording about your your colleague who has like an unbelievably beautiful roof garden sort of in the same style. Yeah. But well-maintained and, you know, building wide and fabulous. But, you know, it's also, it's not maintained by her. Right. So somebody maintains it. Right. And she sort of gets to enjoy it as an environment. Right. Um, But there isn't an ownership. There isn't a direct relationship. I have a direct relationship with what's up here. I mean, right. We scaled a ladder to get up here. So I carried up. 300 pounds of dirt right oh my god yeah 80 buckets so Holy shit. yeah there's definitely a uh there's history here and a connection that only comes from doing yeah we we end with a song okay um and this 
I think is the last ditch effort to bring up uh, one of the, the <laughs> things I feel most guilty about uh, in my life, actually. That's okay. That's it's, shocking. It's true. I, it's like one of the, I don't know. It's like, it's a bad, I feel bad about it. Um, but, uh, just to, to tell the story, I started a, like a random group of friends in a barbershop quartet and Eric, I invited you to be a part of it. And then I like, I ghosted you out of it. So I filled in, I think you had three or four and you needed a baritone. Yep. And I said, sure, I can do that. Why yeah. not? Yeah. Um, the truth was I couldn't actually really do that. Um, so practically I'm not a, a, a good singer. I don't have a good sense of pitch and tone. And the whole point of a barbershop is matching pitch and tone with That's three right. other voices and melding right. together in a harmonious way. Yeah. Um, obviously, I would see you three times a week because of improv. <laughs> um, so it wasn't like you cut me out of your life. No. You just cut that very small segment of our relationship out without informing me. Yeah. Um, so I operated, you know, Ugh. maybe three weeks where I'm like, oh, we haven't met in a while. Oh, that's fine. I still saw you. Not a big deal. And then I finally, like, tried to inquire through others or through you, who I initially found out from. And I had then come to realize that you had the barbershop still existed and had been meeting just with the replacement. Um, and I honestly, you know, the, the truth was the truth. I just think it's so funny that I still saw you for, like, three times a week. And when I live oblivious to something and someone else isn't... Um, I know you were thinking about it. Oh, I know yeah. it was on your mind. Oh, yeah. And I just went about my own happy business. Oh, yeah. Uh, and you were just so scared about it for no reason. So scared about it. Still scared about it. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> that group failed, too. So <laughs> It did. It failed. <laughs> that wasn't about me in the end. No. Um, so let's... All right. So what are we going to try and sing here? Yes. You know... Uh, uh, there's a song or there's a, any oh, song? Oh, any song. Or we make up a song. Oh my goodness! Do I need to know? Right, I don't know if I know lyrics to any song. I don't know I have lyrics to any song either. We no, we can just make up a song. Okay. Oh, Thank you so much. <laughs> My absolute pleasure. What a great afternoon, Ben. Hell yeah. All right. All right. See you right after this. Yeah. <laughs> we are intimately finding our peaceful, cozy zone. And Ben, he interviews friends. It's awkward and then it's cozy zone. Occasionally it's a lovely thing to be nosy in somebody's cozy zone. So please snuggle up sweet. A beautiful thing, it's cozy zone. 